This is The Guardian. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. A year ago this month, Russia invaded Ukraine, sending shockwaves around the world. Loud explosions have been now heard in Ukraine and lots of different cities as the Russian assault has begun. President Biden said that the world will hold Russia accountable for its aggression. NATO has condemned what it called a reckless and unprovoked attack. The invasion has been called the biggest threat to European peace and security since the end of the Cold War. And it's also caused ruptures in the world of science, threatening decades of carefully negotiated cooperation in the process. In the Arctic, in space, and at megalabs like CERN, international scientists have collaborated with Russians to push the boundaries of human knowledge. So what happens if that stops? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. For decades, CERN, home to the Large Hadron Collider, has been a paragon of international scientific collaboration. But the invasion has changed that. During the Cold War, CERN was actually a meeting place between scientists from what was at that time the Soviet Union and the West. And I think that that contact, those contacts through CERN, uh, were a valuable channel of communication so indeed, I think it's a, it's a great shame that uh, now we seem to have regressed or in danger of regressing to a situation which is even greater isolation than there was during the Cold War. John Ellis is a professor of theoretical physics at King's College London. He spent much of his career at CERN. Since 1991, Russia has had observer status to the CERN Council. So what impact has the invasion of Ukraine had there? One was, if you like, the impact on the corridors. Obviously, there was general horror among the non-Russian physicists. And uh, many physicists, Russian physicists working at CERN, signed uh, statements or petitions uh, against the war. That said, the opinions among Russian uh, scientists were not uniform. And uh, there were some apparently uh, very heated discussions amongst uh, members of the Russian physicist community uh, at CERN. On a second level, there was uh, a lot of reaction 
in the CERN Council. Some people wanted to throw all the Russian physicists out. Some people wanted to terminate or suspend uh, the Russian government's observer status at CERN. The decision that was taken was in some sense not to do anything. So it was decided to leave the cooperation agreement with uh, Russia uh, as is until it comes to its natural expiry date in 2024. But what that decision did was to uh, give uh, some breathing space for the uh, various different experimental teams to uh, come up with some solution for how they could maintain their collaboration. News broke at the end of last week of a development in attempts to maintain those collaborations. After the invasion, CERN paused the publication of papers in scientific journals due to a dispute over how to acknowledge Russian contributions. Last week, a workaround was announced whereby Russian scientists can appear on papers, but the Russian institutes they're affiliated with can't. I asked John if he thought this would satisfy all parties involved. It's certainly not going to make everybody happy, and some people are going to be quite unhappy. I'm told that uh, a couple of representatives of the uh, Russian community collaborating with CERN have already written to the uh, president of the CERN Council and the CERN DG, complaining that uh, this whole decision was unconstitutional and it's going to create problems for the collaboration. But if I understand correctly, they stopped short of saying that this is a danger for termination of the collaboration. I think we have to wait to see how the various different uh, governments, the various different ministries respond on both sides of the dispute. So we'll need some time to see how well or not that plays out. Moving on from that publication issue, though, John, are there other challenges that CERN or its staff might need to address going forwards as this war carries on? Currently, uh, CERN is engaged in uh, a project to uh, upgrade the, the Large Hadron Collider. And this means uh, upgrading the accelerator, but also the experiments. Russian scientists uh, were participating in, in that work. And uh, it's not clear to me, at least, uh, how that's going to pan out. But you know, I think there's a severe danger that uh, in the longer term, the sort of very effective collaboration that there's been between Russian scientists and, and CERN will be harmed and may even you know, die out entirely. There is also this question mark over what happens to Russia's observer status come 2024 when it sort of officially expires. If that's terminated, if Russia don't remain, what happens to those Russian scientists at CERN? And could it be difficult for some of those to go back? Indeed, this is uh, potentially a, a big problem. The basis for uh, Russians to uh, live in uh, Switzerland or neighbouring France and work at CERN is the international agreement between CERN and Russia. So if that agreement is no longer in place, some other legal justification for them to be uh, living and working at CERN is going to have to be found. So one possibility would be that they change their affiliation and uh, they go to work for some uh, other institute. But I don't think you know, everybody is going to either be able or, or want to do that. In that case, they, they, they would very likely have to go back to Russia. And uh, some of them could potentially be in severe jeopardy, I think, because many of them signed statements against the war. And uh, you know, who knows what sort of reprisals the Russian government might 
make uh, when they go back. I think it's just very uncertain what's going to happen with this war, what's going to happen in two years' time, what's going to happen next week with this war. My crystal ball is completely cloudy on that point. This sense of uncertainty is forcing other bodies to weigh up their relationship with Russia. One of these is the Arctic Council, the main intergovernmental forum in the Arctic. Its eight members include Canada, Norway, Sweden, the US and Russia, the current chair. It provides vital input into international research on climate change and environmental protection. Svein Wiglund Rotham is a senior researcher at the Frithof Nansen Institute in Norway. One of his main areas of research is science policy and the Arctic Council. So how well was collaboration with Russia working before the invasion? You have to look case by case, because if you look at, for example, the work on Mercury and the monitoring of Mercury on the Russian side, the data has been on and off. Uh, we have to admit that. Uh, but the huge work on permafrost development in Russia, it has clearly been important. Migratory birds, the cooperation between Asian countries and Russia and the Western Arctic states has also been important. But as you all know, Russia hasn't been in the forefront of climate change and environmental protection. So Russia hasn't always pulled its weight on climate, but considering half the Arctic is Russian, it's clearly a very important member of the Arctic Council. So what happened when it invaded Ukraine? In the beginning of March already, the work of the Arctic Council was put on hold by the seven Western Arctic states. In June, uh, July, the work started slowly to get up again, but not including Russia. So there's no institutional cooperation between Russian scientific researchers and uh, researchers from the seven Western Arctic uh, states. Uh, what we saw last year was really confusing times. They didn't know whether the Arctic Council would survive this or, or, or not. But I would say in November, December, there was some sort of a common understanding among uh, the Western Arctic states that we should still go on working on these issues. And I guess we're a bit in a flux now. It's really difficult to see where the Arctic Council will be heading. So it has been a severe blow or a huge setback in the work of the Arctic Council. From your perspective, do you think international scientists, or the Arctic Council even, should be restarting cooperation with the Russians on this? Or is that just not possible right now? Right now, it's not possible. My take on this is really that there will be a time after this as well. And I think that the first and uh, maybe the most clear place to start up is uh, in Arctic scientific cooperation. This might be the best bridge because we have this network that has been going on for, well, before the Arctic Council as well. And it's not a high politics question. So it's easier to start up some sort of cooperation between Russia and the Western Arctic states in this field because it's not about security and military issues. What we have witnessed with the Arctic Council, they haven't closed the door for Russia. It's just a pause. If this conflict continues and it seems it will, and it's not appropriate for Russia to retake an active role in the council. What do you see happening? I mean, is, is there a sort of a worst case scenario in terms of just not getting information from the Russian Arctic or input from Russian scientists? 
I guess that's the worst case uh, scenario, and and that is what we're in right now. It's hard to predict what will happen in the future, but clearly that will be a huge setback for climate change issues or the work on how to understand climate change in the Arctic and on environmental protection issues in, in the Arctic for decades. It can be easy sometimes when you're sort of on the outside to think that science and politics are completely separate. But of course, you know, they are entwined. And I'm wondering if science has a role to play in diplomacy. What we saw when the Arctic Council was established, it was clearly not all about scientific research. It was also about creating a venue for uh, some sort of a meeting place between past enemies after the Cold War. And uh, if we look at the last 10, 15 years, the foreign ministries, uh, ministers of uh, every Arctic state has been attending this um, ministerial meeting every second year. And this has clearly some sort of a symbolic value as well. The impact of the invasion on both CERN and the Arctic Council, as well as many other scientific organisations around the world, show not only how important international collaborations are for doing science, but also their role in global diplomacy. Conversations around paper publications, who chairs what committees, what countries are involved in building the next big detector or spacecraft, might be challenging, nuanced and delicate. But as I put to John Ellis, they're invaluable for answering some of our biggest questions. Science is uh, engaged in trying to understand the way that the universe works. And uh, this can be the fundamental physics processes that occurred very early in the history of the universe, which is the sort of thing that CERN does, to uh, monitoring climate change in the the Arctic or or the Antarctic. These scientific uh, topics are of, I think, universal interest and and universal importance. And uh, we scientists are fortunate enough to uh, get support from governments and, and other institutions to actually pursue those studies in a systematic way and try to understand the way the universe works. Thanks again to Svein Wiegler-Rottam and Professor John Ellis. Before we go, I want to tell you about an offer from The Guardian. If you subscribe to our newspapers today, you can get up to 42% off, meaning you pay only £1.60 per issue. The offer ends on Sunday the 19th of February 2023. Just search Guardian Newspaper Subscription. This episode of Science Weekly was produced by Madeline Finlay and Holly Fisher. The sound designer was Joel Cox and executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. 
Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.